I love a good epic fantasy full of swashbuckling adventure and high magic. But sometimes I prefer quieter stories about books, healing, and scholarly heroes. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Elizabeth Knox. Her latest fantasy novel, The Absolute Book, released earlier this month. Elizabeth and I discussed the unlikely origin story for The Absolute Book, her contribution to the mythology of purgatory, and the future of the Vintner's Luck series. And with that, let's jump ahead and get right into the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Elizabeth. It's so great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. So the other day I was browsing your website and I saw that you and your sisters used to play an imaginary game together that became kind of this epic ongoing saga set in another world, which I think even eventually helped generate several of your story ideas. So if you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to kick this off by just hearing more about this epic saga that you and your sisters created. Well, we it was myself and my two sisters and a friend and then at a later date in life, another friend and at one point it was my whole student flat and we also stopped kind of just making it be a storytelling game and at that point we were leaping in and out windows with plastic guns and <laughs> but uh principally it was like one story with kind of um branches uh but a version of it still continues today between me and my younger sister. So she's she's in the Blue Mountains in Australia and I'm here in Wellington, New Zealand, and we, we get on the as soon as Skype started working, we started using Skype. Um, I think we use uh what do we use now? Is it Zoom? Yes, it's Zoom, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Zoom seems to be the popular app of choice now. Yes, when you can record it too, so it makes it easier. And also the sound quality. You don't get that. There are Cylons on this line with us thing that Skype was always. <laughs> it's like, oh, Cylons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, so so uh, it just took, it went over years and kept adapting according to who left. Because if, if somebody left the story, one of the creators, then all their characters went with them. And so they all, they would have, um, you know, emigrated to live in some other continent and, and thereafter only sent letters or something. And I guess continuously there have been characters who we would have created when I would have been 12 and they still exist. So Wow. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, really, if, if anybody reads all my books, there are various people that turn up in kind of iterations that are versions of those characters, kind of like avatars of a sort, except there's a number of them and, and they, and they can behave very differently. So yeah, um, it's been useful. And also I've got some very good plots out of it over time. You have to make lots of adjustments because usually they're much more messy and incoherent and self-indulgent. So, so yeah, I 
I tend to take out a lot of stuff. Yeah, I know. I, f- I forget. I think it was a speech you gave at some point that you have featured on your website, probably for one of your several award acceptances, where you were talking about, I guess, you were pretending that you had been kidnapped and that you were trying to escape, but you were gathering firewood or something. And so you roped in this other unsuspecting family. That definitely uh, captured me. It was like I was reading a novel or something <laughs> while I was going through this. Yeah, we were wild children. So that wasn't the ongoing saga game. That was just a purpose-built you know, can we have these kids on and can we get them to join in the game while we're we're all pretending it's not a game? And and I I mean yeah. they were never really completely convinced, but they went along with it because I mean they were new to the area and they weren't being let to wander around the streets because they had good parents, whereas we were being left to wander around the streets. So yeah, we were providing entertainment by humiliating ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it sounds like you would be a very excellent, like, uh, what do they call them? Uh, I show how much I don't do tabletop games, but like a game master or a dungeon master or something like that. Sounds like you could lead a really great involved campaign. I um, I can remember when I first heard about Dungeons and Dragons. So we've been playing our long saga game, a group of girls, really, for years. And I read about Dungeons and Dragons shortly after it started. It was an article in Omni magazine and I thought oh you know and they roll dice you know where's the consent in the dice so yeah but I but I do know some lifetime gamers now and um their gaming has evolved well beyond the dice rolling stage and into much more kind of character-based mutual consent type stories the character can't just say I have this much charisma they actually have to manifest the charisma in order to persuade people. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I've only dipped my toes into that kind of thing, but it is really fun to kind of like actually get fully invested in a role or something and play it along with a story. Well, I've been doing it all my life. I mean, being not being myself has been my great delight. That's what I love about being a novelist is, is that you, I mean, it's a hard mental task and a, and a fully engaged and fun one when you're writing a novel but you're not yourself. I mean, you just, it's not that you are your characters so much. It's just that you are self-forgetting to the point that you're, you're really involved with what they're thinking and how they're reacting while throwing stuff at them. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I know. Uh, so you have been telling these stories for so long. I am curious, like what was like the initial spark? What made you fall in love with, you know, science fiction, fantasy, all kinds of speculative stories? My father was a a great reader and always inclined to tell his very young daughters that they should be reading Proust. It's what we call a Proust. You have to read Proust, he says to you, you know, your 11-year-old. <laughs> and he was very scornful about all the beloved and acceptable fantasy. So he wouldn't have Tolkien and C.S. Lewis in the house. C.S. Lewis, because of the Christianity and dad was a, a born-again atheist and a former Catholic, so he wasn't having a bar of any any form of Christianity. And Tolkien, because everybody else loved it, so it had to be bad. So I remember a very good friend of his turned up with those books and said, you know, basically, not, you know, for heaven's sake, not. <laughs> Let your girls have these books. And he couldn't do anything about it. But he loved science fiction. So he had a big science fiction library, and I could just remember this, this endless display of the 
purple and yellow covered Galance box, the British imprint. And as soon as I was able to, I was picking up Brian Aldis and oh, I can't remember who was it wrote. Oh, I can't even remember the names of the title. But anyway, Ray Bradbury and, and Harry Harrison and Philip Jose Farmer. And so I, I just started reading those when I was probably about 11, 12, as well as the kids' books, because my father provided me with Andre Norton science fiction, not a fantasy, it doesn't have any of that. And uh, I suppose I became attracted to fantasy because I read C.S. Lewis and, and The Hobbit, but also also through, um, well, Andre Norton. Yeah, I loved her books. And then Anne McCaffrey. So, yep, that was, that was it from then, the magic of that. Yeah, it's always interesting to me how it's so hard for any person, myself included, to narrow down just like one specific thing. There's always like a whole host of books and genres and everything. I feel like that ropes you in in the beginning. Yes, but there was there's, there was a magic moment. I think it was Bradbury because Bradbury's sort of deeper than a lot of the other stuff I was reading, and it was the fact that I managed to be feeling, you know, grief and loss and nostalgia at the age of eleven years old. Uh, reading about a Martian having lost their home because they've all they've all died in the plague and they're basically ghosts haunting their world pretty much. Um, this is in the, it was the it was called the Silver Locust, but it was the Martian Chronicles. And then the astronaut who's remembering his childhood in his hometown of was it Greentown, Illinois, in Ray Bradbury, and eleven-year-olds haven't had much loss or nostalgia themselves, but the fact that these feelings were completely produced in me by the books, I, I can remember you know, my brain sort of waking up a bit. So that, that was that was one of the big things that started me. The other one that started me was being bussed off at 11 years old to watch Laurence Olivier's Henry V. And it was two classes of school children, big classes, and they rioted, you know. They, they were sitting there and they were bored silly because they couldn't understand what was going on because it was Shakespeare. And there were a few of us who kind of worked our way to the front and sat there and watched it because after a while we got our ear in and it turned from being a foreign language into being a story that we could understand. And then it was just the filmic magic of that, the way that it, starts off in the Globe Theatre, then moves onto a soundstage and then moves out into the open air for the Battle of Argentport and then moves back to the soundstage and then goes back to the Globe. It's kind of the sort of structure of artifice, theatrical artifice that's built into the thing. And I was absolutely taken with it. But I was at that time and for a long time afterwards, I, I couldn't write. Like I could read anything, but I couldn't write. And I'm... You know, it took me years to know what that was. I can remember as an adult writer describing myself as having been a dyslexic child and then, you know, describing the experience and, and a former teacher sitting on one of my audiences sort of piped up and said to me, that's, that's not dyslexia, that was dysgraphia. So I had dysgraphia. So I so I came back from Henry V and started making long freezes of battles. So I'd sellotape the pictures together. So watercolors of knights and horses, and that was that was my storytelling. That that was what I could do. Yeah, that's fascinating. So yeah, I'm always curious. Like, so how did you go from there to eventually being a writer? Because I'm always interested. Everyone has their different journey along the way. Well, I think it was practice. 
we had that imaginary game. And at some point, my father walked into the room while we were discussing a treaty that had been broken by one side, you know, end of the treaty, one signatory, and what would happen. And it was a complicated discussion about alliances and which which princesses married to which prince would now be desperately uncomfortable because the country had betrayed that country and so on. And he just said, you should be writing this down. And we'd never thought of it. So what we started doing was writing letters between our characters, and I just loved doing that. And I can remember a point when I was doing that, writing writing letters, when I thought, oh, I want to be a writer. And then I realised I had a I had a big barrier, so I just wrote all the time. And the more I wrote, the more the glass wall between me and the ability to put words on the page sort of slowly dissolved. And to this day, I still... I'm bad with left and right, and if I walk out, if I if I'm anywhere with the subway and I walk out of the subway, I never go the right direction, <laughs> never. And I can't spell, I can't spell to save myself, and I can't pronounce things. I'll if I if I have a correct and an incorrect pronunciation, I'll just alternate anyway, without even if I make a conscious effort. And that's just the lingering effects of the dysgraphia, because, I mean, it's a neurological thing. There's nothing you can really do about it. It, it just, it, your brain sort of accommodates and reroutes. Right. Absolutely. So I am curious. I think you mentioned this very briefly uh, just a moment ago. Uh, so you teach a class uh, on world building. So I'm curious, could you just tell us a little bit about what that involves? Well, it's a fantastic job because there's there's an institute called the International Institute of Modern Letters, which runs out of Victoria University, and we get, get students from all over, and it's one of those very good writing programs, and it has a number of undergraduate courses, and I teach a third stage course on world building, and it's really a storytelling, story problem solving course because it's collaborative. I get them to write a novel together and so that none of them will come with their own, clinging to their own precious projects that they want to push forward, I randomise it completely. I get them to write lists of things that they've been encountered recently in fiction, books, TV, games, whatever, that they've really liked, like just things like characters or incidents or things, just little short lists and then we get all the lists, everybody's lists, and we put them together and sort them into setting and character and story starting problem and magical mechanism or just, just under different headings. And then they have to take all those elements and choose some of them and pitch a story to the – everybody pitches a story to the class, and they have to choose. Not, it's usually not one pitch. It's, you know, they do a mashup, usually two or three. And then – we go through the list of characters that come up with from, you know, the original list and uh, figure out which ones will work with that world or story. And then they pick the characters out of the hat. So they get a principal character, a point of view character they start with, and then a reserved character. And it's 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 a mad method, you know, and it's, and it's my method, but it randomizes it. And it means that when they go off into chapter one with some idea about the world, that you know they they've already been provided with the discipline of a limited story 
And after that, they have to figure out how to make things consistent and they have to figure out stuff about pacing and order and and it just it just turns into the nitty-gritty. There's a lot of storylining and it's really, really fun. That's sort of a lot of hair raising, yelling and you know. <laughs> what are we? What are we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. That sounds like a class that I would have loved to have taken in school. It <laughs> yeah, sounds like uh, exactly my kind of thing. It's a ball, but I think I've just given away my method. Oh. <laughs> I haven't patented it. So, all right, anyone who <laughs> wants that, that's the Elizabeth Knox method of doing a collaborative novel. <laughs> yeah, I love that too, because to me, like that kind of sounds like it would be, even if you're just like a solo writer, a useful way of approaching it in the beginning is just kind of brain dump at the start and then sort everything and then come up with possible stories from the ideas that you have there and kind of whittle it down. Yeah, and it usually ends up with being a, co- a combination of some very challenging roles that someone might start with, like godlike father figure is one that somebody's working on at the moment. But then there, we were talking about little gods, there being little gods, and um, we're doing science fiction, so it's a robot who has been cultivating poultry for a long time, and they are the god of specifically chickens. So um, that's a character that they're having fun with at the moment. So, you know, it's four higher samurai. And I was teaching yesterday, so they're just writing their first chapters. So they're in the thick of it already. I love that. Are you teaching remotely or are you guys actually able to have teaching in person? We're in the classroom. We went back to level two recently because Auckland was at level three. So Auckland was in, um, you know, if you can stay home, do stay home and, you know, wear masks on public transport, which we have to too at level two. Um, but we were still allowed in the classroom with social distancing. If you, if you can get everybody a metre apart, that's fine. I mean, and this is... It's, it's strange because it sounds insufficient in a place where there's a lot of COVID, but if you know that there's just three people in Auckland who have it at the moment and they're doing contact tracing and, you know, that's Auckland and you're in Wellington, chances of you sitting next to someone who has COVID is very, very slender. So, yeah, it's kind of managed risk. Yeah, that's an entirely different world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, they really do err on the side of caution too. So people are constantly having their weddings cancelled. You know, they go to level three and it's like, oh, you're only allowed to be in a room with 10 people now. <laughs> yep. But it doesn't happen often, so. That's good. It's a it's a crazy world. <laughs> and I'm it's glad so New crazy. Zealand seems to uh, be handling it fairly competently. Yeah, well, our, our, we didn't, our hospital systems couldn't cope. They were collapsed completely, so they decided they were going to be very firm about the whole thing. There were a few people who have squawked about their freedoms, but they've got quieter and quieter as they've had much, much more freedom than the, obviously much more freedom than the rest of the world. Yeah. Freedom's an idea as well as being an actual practicality, so we, we have freedom. Yeah, I think uh, the U.S. could benefit from kind of that concept of earned freedom when you actually follow science and your government has their act together. Uh, maybe one day. Yes, well, it's rather freedom isn't the freedom to think whatever you want to based on any old evidence, really. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just craziness. But, well, 
Okay, well, we've talked for a while without actually digging into why you're here. So we're here to discuss The Absolute Book, your latest novel. So do you have a pitch for The Absolute Book? It's the story of a woman who lost her sister, couldn't live with the idea that the person who killed her sister only could be tried for manslaughter and got a very light prison sentence, fell across an opportunity to get her revenge using someone else of very dubious character to do it, did it, um, and made herself feel disqualified for her own personal life. So she has a public life, but not a personal life. And uh, she also broke open all the locks on her soul. So she's written a book about libraries. And, you know, she's enjoying some success. It's a non-fiction book about things that threaten libraries. But the success has brought things back into her life. And one of the things is a police officer who was investigating the death of the person who killed her sister, the mysterious death when he got out of prison, and never let it go. And he was a detective constable, but he's now a detective inspector. So if he wants to seize hold of something, you know, he can go. So he's the other point of view character, Jacob. So it's Taryn and Jacob. And the other thing that happens to Taryn is that she starts having fits. Like she's supposed to be a uh, matron of honour at her friend's wedding, but she can't go into the church. She has a fit instead and ends up in hospital. And something inside her seems to sometimes seize hold of her voice and start asking sly questions about an object that was once in her grandfather's library. And the object is called the fire starter because it survived lots of library fires over history. And she's mentioned it in her book. So her book has brought this thing inside her. The thing's a demon. The demon is looking for the fire starter. And then, of course, gradually lots of other people begin to look for the fire starter. So Taryn ends up basically being pursued one way or another by rather frightening, unearthly interested parties because she knows something she's forgotten she knows and by this police person and then eventually he and her are forced to become kind of human allies while surrounded by others because it all escalates and turns into a a kind of a race to find this thing for different reasons everybody has a different reason for wanting to get hold of it and a different idea about what it might be the fire starter there the ancient scroll box. That's, I guess that's kind of, it's not really a pitch pitch, but that's that's the sort of setup. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's a, it's a hard book to pitch if you were going to try to shorten it down much more than that, I feel like, because, I mean, it starts out kind of everyday, normal life kind of, and then it escalates and it escalates and it escalates until you're involving multiple worlds, you're involving gods, you're involving different realms of reality. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely a lot thrown into one. Yes, well, that's right. And I, I was what I was always interested in writing was, was an, what I call an intimate epic. So it's, it's sort of epic in scope, but it keeps coming back to experiences of, of the main characters and sort of deepening the reader's experience of their experiences. And the things that seem like little things that are just along the pathway of the story will come back. Everything keeps coming back. You know, characters that you believe you've lost sight at because they belong to Taryn's childhood suddenly turn up like the the man who set fire to her grandfather's library turns up 
um, running a bookshop in Tintern that, that they end up in, uh, you know, they end up setting fire to <laughs> at the end of the book. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it does that. It kind of, it, it's, it's partly the illusion of epicness. So it does have scope, but it, but it winds some very strong strands all the way through. And they're the, the important things. Yeah, and I think I've heard you call this type of story an arcane thriller before, which, to be honest, I had never actually heard that term before. So what exactly is an arcane thriller? An arcane thriller, I mean, I might have coined this, but I but I did so in a conversation with someone else, and I can't remember which of us said it first, so we might one of us might have just come up with it. Something like the Da Vinci Code or um, Kate Moss's Labyrinth series or The Shadow of the Wind, anything where you have a scholarly hero seeking for something that is a little bit mystical. It doesn't have to end up being magical because in the Da Vinci Code it's obviously not. It's just a kind of a scandal about the history of the church, you know, trying to hide this fact that Jesus Christ had children so that's the non-magical version or in the Kate Moss version the, the protagonist actually ends up as a time traveler so uh it's it's just I just think of it as a book where a scholarly hero is looking for something so I would say also um the name of the rose is another one okay yeah but, yeah yeah and Interesting. That makes sense as a genre. It's not something that I'd heard of before, but I can definitely know exactly what you're talking about and think of ideas for stories that would fit into there. Yes. So if I've coined the phrase, that's great. But I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like I did. I feel like I might have heard someone else use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to pin these things down. I'm happy to unofficially give you credit for that and acknowledge that you coined the term, whether it's true or not. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's talk a bit about how the Absolute Book came to be internationally published so that people like myself could have the pleasure of reading it. So how did the book go from being, I think it started out as a New Zealand-only story, to landing international publishing deals? Right, so my husband is my New Zealand publisher. That's how we met originally, you know, with my first novel, which was many, many years ago. As he, at the age of 25, was publishing my novel at the age, I was 27, he was 25, 25-year-old <laughs> editor of a very small publishing company, which is a much bigger one now, but he's still the publisher of. So what happened was, Honestly, without naming names, they had paid a rather large amount of money for someone else's book, and the books weren't looking too good, you know, the, the figures, <laughs> because this hadn't been delivered. And so I'm one of the best-selling authors, so they said, Elizabeth, please give us something for the Christmas mark. And I had this novel, which was finished, but which I hadn't really taken out to agents and wasn't really... I, you know, I wasn't trying, and I was also sitting on him going, yeah, that, go back to that in three months and, you know, so, check it again. But as it was, I mean, you're married to the publisher, and they go, please, you sort of have to do something. And they did, they did really well with it. It did really well here. So, uh, and at that point, what happened was that Dan Coyce from Slate had been here some years before and I've written about his New Zealand experience 
and he was still reading New Zealand books and he had asked the publicist of the BUP to send various things, including my book, and she had forgotten and he reminded her. So this is, this is one of these things where you think, and he reminded her and it makes all the difference. Then she sent it and he just loved it. He absolutely loved the book. So uh, then he, he wrote his extremely wild review saying this New Zealand masterpiece needs an American publisher right now. And the thing about it was it wasn't just that he asserted that. It was that he described the book incredibly well. And then it, the phones went mad. So I suddenly had um, VUP and me, the person running my website, that you know, the web whatever they call them, suddenly had all these agents and publishers wanting to read the book and Disney and Bad Robot. It was was insane. It was really, it was a ride. It was a great trip. And then from that I got an agent and then a whole lot of interested publishers. So, you know, there were a number of people who made offers on the book. And that was, that was great because that proved that it wasn't just Dan being enthusiastic, but in the end, because it got into the hands of the editors, they went, yep, yep, yeah, I, I, can, <laughs> I can do something with that. And then I had to make a difficult choice. <laughs> it's just really terrible when you're spoiled for choice. So, yeah, I, yeah. I went Terrible, I went. but also not too bad of a situation yeah, to be in. <laughs> fantastic. But completely coincidentally, the editor that I went with in England, at, at, um, Michael Joseph, had actually just read the book because someone gave it to her. And she had got in touch with me exactly the same day that all this blow, blew up, saying, oh, I'm just for you, what I really like to publish it. <laughs> and because she got in that early, so all that happened was she ended up paying more for it. But, but they're doing a fantastic job, um, Michael Joseph, so... And I'm really glad I went with her. And also, she was seduced by the book first before Dan did some pre-seducing, some pandering, some <laughs> whatever the pimping, pimping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And I mean, my understanding normally is, you know, publishing moves really, really slowly compared to what a typical reader might expect. But I think from the article going out in Slate by Dan to like these publishing deals coming through, that was something like two weeks or so. That seems really fast. Yeah, that was really fast. It was. That, that, that was, yeah, it was, it was a roller coaster. It was fantastic. It was just this great ride. And then really the book, it's only a year between all that happening and it coming out too, which doesn't seem like very long. Um, but it was pretty clean. I'm really glad I got a chance to go back to various things, you know, because by that time I was like, yeah, that, that bit is confusing readers a little bit. So you know, uh, I much prefer my American and English versions to my New Zealand one because it just because it's just got that little bit of extra tidying. Yeah. Yeah, I am always curious about that when you have different editors on different versions of the book and all of that. Uh, so was it just kind of tightening up little bits for clarity or did you add significant content, take stuff out? How much changed between? Um, I had th- the three, they worked together. Um, Brian Tart, who bought the book, and Richard Schmidt, both at Viking in the US, and then um, Jill Taylor at Michael Joseph actually edited it together while they were all locked down, so I think. You know, it was quite fun for them. <laughs> uh, but they had said to me first, well, these are some things you might want to think about, but really it's quite clean, so if you don't want to do anything at all, that's all right with us. And I was like, are you kidding? You know, like, I mean, 
let me at it. So, yeah, it was really good to be guided by their, their questions and then also just to be able to look at things that were, were now bugging me, like that sentence, <laughs> that could go, yeah. And, and then I'd, I'd also had had, there was an argument was first published between in Victoria University Press, the whole staff were completely divided about a prologue, which is a, positioned it very strongly as fantasy from the start, whereas I wanted the fantasy to creep into it. And half of them wanted that prologue and half of them didn't. And it was a great bit of writing, and I couldn't do anything with it when I decided it wasn't going in there because I was right. No, I think it's better to sneak, but it sneaks up on you, all the mad fantasy elements. But um, it was a really useful bit of writing that told a story, but I found a place for it later. So it's in the American and English edition, sort of in, in the later third of the book. Not prologue. Oh, the okay. Way, so it is actually in the book. It's just mm-hmm. at a different location. It's a different okay. location, yeah. And it was obvious once I found the place. But I was like, oh, yes, no, that, that makes complete sense. But you can't see things until you can see them. Uh, well, you've said that the Absolute book kind of started as amusing on the kinds of stories that you love, particularly ones that you've loved for a really long time. So I'm just curious, what kinds of stories are those? I love stories about the terrible tithe of fairyland, the tithe that the fairy people, the she, have to pay to hell. So it appears in the Tamlin story and a number of other stories. It's just kind of like runs through fairy mythology. And... I just wanted to do my version of that, how it came about, um, how they feel about it, how they cope with it as there are fewer and fewer of them. Like They're like an endangered species, so um, they have to keep paying for their immortal lives, but there's fewer and fewer of them able to go out and seduce human beings. And so I was interested in their beautiful society that's founded on theft because they have a lovely pastoral, communal, nomadic world, and they look after the people, but they're basically farming souls. They might look after them for a while, but eventually the poor people end up in hell um, when the tithe comes around. So I wanted to, to do that. So that's a very important part of the book. Like it's, it's one of the insoluble problems that has to be fixed. Like can you change these circumstances is, you know, the kind of running theme of the book. So it was that, and I and like I say, the arcane thriller thing. I do like a story where people are searching for things through museums and libraries. So I had that going on in it, and also I had come out of some really bad years where my mother had ALS and died, and my husband's brother was killed, uh, pretty much in the same way that Taryn's sister is killed. And the man in that case was also tried for manslaughter because you couldn't prove intent. And um, that was quite difficult, particularly because unlike Taryn's sister, he left behind a wife and four children. And um, so those children became came much more into our lives and became our responsibilities. So those were we had about three really difficult years where these things were happening. And at the end... After my mother had gone, you sort of sit a vigil with people as they're going, and it's wonderful to walk away in the end from the vigil of the dying. And it's wonderful to walk away tired rather than to run away, have run away scared halfway through. 
because people do that too. You know, they go, oh, I can't cope. <laughs> and I can just remember being exhausted but not being consumed by guilt or shame or rage or any of those things. I was just plain tired and also I kind of lost my faith in the safety of the world, which is what happens to Taryn when her sister's killed because of my brother-in-law being killed. And just because when you see people go through hard things, it, you know, it, it just rocks you, as you'll know, living in America right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what I wanted to capture when I came out of that wasn't those, those feelings, because I'd already written about that. What I wanted to capture after some time was the feeling of coming back to life. So I wanted to put that into the book, the feeling of coming back to life and to to feeling useful to your own life, and that's Taryn's journey. So, so although there's an arcane thriller thing going on and a fantasy thing going on, there's also a recovery narrative because it really is. She's the main protagonist, and it's a story about how she gradually gets better because she figures out what what she should do, what she should do for other people, what she should do for herself, and she just comes back to being able to experience happiness. Yeah, I know probably... So one of the central themes that resonated with me was just that coming back together, that healing and moving on that we see in a variety of ways throughout the story. Uh, but you don't really shy away from kind of the steps that it takes to get there, which I appreciate. Yeah, well, no. Um, yeah, because the steps are built into it, really, aren't they? Kind of like it's all it's all hard one and makes it makes for a better story. Also, I, I think I'm congenitally unable to not stickle the hard stuff in yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that makes for the interesting stories right like you were saying yeah it does yeah M much more M much more jeopardy yeah much more to be gained so working that many elements kind of that you experience from your own life into the story hopefully it's not too presumptuous to think that maybe a part that might differ is the inclusion of mi5 uh, oh, because yeah. that's also an element <laughs> but yeah because i mean that's an element of the book that I thought was really interesting, but I don't see talked about much. So can you talk about why you worked in MI5 into the story? Well, I my foolish plan at the start was to make Jacob in MI5. So so the, the, okay. the guy who becomes the police detective who's chasing a cold case, which is actually a much better way in for that character because it ties him much more strongly to Taryn, was originally MI5. And as I wrote and rewrote and rewrote, I just realized that, and I'd, of course I've been doing so much research, what I realized doing research and digging deeper and deeper into to MI5 by reading fiction with MI5 in it and reading biographies and autobiographies um, of people who've been in MI5, is that the version they produce of their own real lives, people who've been in the Secret Services, still reads like fiction. And when you're writing a book with fantasy, you really have to tie down, like, like you say, the everyday. You have to really tie down everything to the world. So people's jobs have to feel like real jobs, including something as sort of strange and rarefied as being a spy. So I, I just couldn't make them stop sounding like fiction to any degree. The, the, the degree of fictionality and, and that bit of the fiction was too fictional. <laughs> like, my fairies were 
much more re- persuasively realistic than, than my spies. So what I did is I just realised, well, actually, I can't have a point of view character. But at that point, I was completely in love with the character of Raymond Price, um, who I really love Raymond Price in the story. He's one of the difficult people in the story, um, him and, and Shift, who's really the other major character, but who's, who's the magical being. His aunt, who's the she, a fairy person, she's also a difficult person, one of my favourite people. But Raymond Price, he's really MI6. He, people say, you're MI5 to him, and he goes, yes, I'm a public servant, but, you know, he's it. He's actually in my six. He's much more scary than me at sure. my five. But um, yeah, I loved having that in it. And, and it, it, it follows on. I mean, if you just thought that the demons are chasing this object for some reason, it, it, it just sort of sticks in the realm of fantasy. But they have a non fantastic plan for using this thing, which involves building a a server farm with multiple computers and coders and cryptographers somewhere. And, of course, MI5 has mistaken this for cyber terrorism. So they're chasing around Taryn because she talked with some people um, who they think are cyber terrorists. (laughs) So it's it's not really a red herring because by this time, I mean, the reader will know quite early on that the secret services are barking up the wrong tree, but the fun of the thing is is to watch them continue to behave behave as if they're dealing with a problem in the world we know, where actually they're dealing with a, a problem that's coming from another world. Now it's just it's just quite fun. I had a lot of fun with that. And um and Raymond Price is so capable, but he's a bit of a fall guy. Definitely an interesting character too, especially as some of the more fantastic elements get introduced and just can't really accept that. Like, I mean, I don't know how I would accept a fantastic element, but I would probably be a little more grounded in the real world as well. Yeah, well, in the end, he's pretty much forced to accept things. Some things happen that are just utterly bizarre, and he's there and sees them with his own eyes. So, in the end, he's he's even more outraged. <laughs> so, victim of the author. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so another aspect of the book that I also don't feel like I see discussed enough was purgatory. So I listened to the audio version of the book, so I might be slightly paraphrasing here, so I apologize, but I absolutely adored the quote about uh, purgatory is not forever regretting your mistakes, but forever defending your decisions. Um, I feel like that really set kind of the thematic tone for purgatory. Yeah, um, I knew that I had to go to purgatory towards the end of the book, and I had had an idea of what purgatory was like, which actually comes from my imaginary games, from a couple of experiment, experimental purgatories that, that, you know, we had a go at in the course of that. So, um, the you know, the trains, where you can't be sure whether they're going to stop at the station, um, that, yeah, that all comes from imaginary games. I knew I had to get it right, and I'm very, very proud of that chapter. I'm very proud of the way I imagine what the people's lives will be in purgatory. The fact that they're always trying to, they're, they're, they're very solipsistic. They're always trying to solve the problem they've brought there and they're not, they don't help each other. And I thought that was kind of like a, a thing about purgatory was this kind of lack of commute because the idea of cooperation and helping each other runs all the way through and 
anything of good that happens in the end of the book is because of the very unlikely bedfellows who come to compromises, you know, and decide they will help each other. But, you know, my purgatory runs like that, that they, you know, they're obsessively stuck trying to fix things about about their their own lives, trying to discover what they did wrong, searching the dusty archives, the news about themselves, which is a bit like, you know, Googling yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, if, if there's anything in the book that I'm completely proud of and I think is a, feels like I've made my contribution to something, a strong comp- contribution to something um, religious or mythical or whichever, whether you want to look at it as a possibility or that is, exists. But, no, it's limbo that the Catholic Church still has purgatory but doesn't have limbo. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I'm not that knowledgeable. Yeah, I'm, on that. <laughs> I'm never up with that. I just thought I, yeah, I thought that my purgatory was definitely my purgatory. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even if that is like a contribution to the mythology or religious nature of it, I feel like it also kind of has some interesting commentary on the real world as well. Because I mean, if we could all stop being solipsistic and focusing on just our own problems and immediately around us, I feel like we could maybe get a little bit more done. Yes, well, that's right. And, you know, the, way, the fact that that quietly leads into the climate change thing that's been running through the whole book invisibly. Because the, I mean, the book has so many things that are hidden in it, like hidden people and the hidden the fire starter being a, a self-hiding object that uh that that there's a whole huge strong theme that's sort of a shining greenly up through the whole book. <laughs> but purgatory really cues it because of having a garden made there at the end that just leads on to, to where the whole thing's going. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I also kind of appreciate the nature elements of the various book covers that go with the absolute book. Mm, yes. Yeah. Leaves. Animals, plants, yeah. Yeah, beautiful and thematic, which is always nice. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I got some very good covers there. I'm pleased with all of them. Uh, well, so the Absolute Book does kind of feel like a blending of opposites. So we've talked about it being kind of like the everyday and the mundane, as well as like this very explicitly in-your-face magical. Uh, and even switching from one chapter to the next feels like it could put readers in what feels like almost an entirely different genre. So how do you balance all of this into one cohesive story? Well, it's, it's how much you're attached to the fact that the characters are pulling you all through it, that they're the ones who have to deal with the, oh, no, look what's happening now. But everything that happens, like the, the bit on the estuary where it switches to running like a thriller, like, you know, that's my homage to Lee Child, basically. <laughs> that's been queued up because, you know, that, that's the other shoe dropping the, all the way through. Taryn's been having these silent phone calls and the person who committed the murder for her is just gradually catching up with her. He catches up. He has his own program and his program looks like this, you know. And um, so then it turns into complete, you know, um, practical physical threat where where the only enemy is is an incoming tide. Um, So there's a book behind the book which I read when I was first when I was 16, and that's um, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, which I always talk about. And it's a great book. It's a mixed tone book, and it's got fast and comedy and um, social satire, and it's got romance and magnificence and beauty and awe, and it just does it all. Like, it just, 
and goes, this is the world and these are the things that people experience and why, and this is what it feels like being in Soviet Russia in the late 20s because that's the time it was written about. And this is the way to handle these big things is to is to not be afraid to have you know, things that are farcical as well as things that are transcendent, kind of just moving and blending. And so I was really deliberately trying to do that with the book. And part of one way of doing that was actually just to sort of uh, blend genres, yeah, and find them not incompatible in a story that's about multiple worlds and multiple peoples. Yeah, and it definitely fits together into something rather unique. I definitely appreciated that as a reader. Yeah, well, that's right. It's it's mad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was aware that it was slightly bonkers, but I was like, yes, go for it. (laughs) But also, you know, I I wanted to move people in the end. And and I do think that 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 business where you're laughing one moment and then you aren't, which theatre does so well, which which you find in Shakespeare, and which I, I always like to quote Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a case in point. Buffy could be grand you know that that program was grand and and heroic and and you know sad and dramatic and melodramatic and also completely silly and funny and it was all all those things were compatible because people don't experience themselves as sober one-tone heroes of narratives people experience themselves as someone who's you know laughing one minute and then having to deal with shit the next yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of why I gravitate towards genres that don't limit the scope of emotion that I guess you could encounter within it. Yeah, that's why I'm watching a lot of Korean television, because they do that. They do not mind being highly comic and then incredibly melodramatic. You know, it's just, yeah. Well, so uh, as a lifelong reader who has a particular soft spot for books about books. I loved the central role of books and libraries in this story. Uh, and so I feel like an appropriate way to kind of close out talking about this book is just asking what I'm sure is the easiest question for any book lover to answer. Uh, what do books and libraries mean to you? Okay, libraries. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll just tell a little bit of my father's story. My father was had a, a solo mother with three children, and this was back before there were any benefits at all. And he was a very difficult child because of things that had happened to him that he kept secret, because children do. And he committed some crimes when he was about 13 and was sent, it was during World War II, so he was sent off under the Manpower Act of World War II to work as a labourer on a farm where he didn't sleep in any kind of a building. He slept on a dirt-floored, flax, tin and flax-roofed forry which is a Māori word, and he had a miserable life and the family used to beat him. And in his story, there are some heroes, and one of the heroes is the Great Town Librarian, who he was buying detective, he was not buying, he was borrowing detective stories, and she took him under her wing when she'd talked to him about books, and, you know, he'd be going, he'd talk and talk about books, and started giving him Hardy and Joseph Conrad and things like that to read, and sort of a melting and it woke him up and the library was literally a refuge from a terrible miserable existence you know on his his Sunday afternoons off this is sort of like you know it's mid 20th century but and um 
he was a lovely, lovely man, my father, but he was also sort of damaged and broken and he had a problem with drink. And so there was a point during my teen years where it was impossible to go home because he was drunk and violent. So where was I? I was in the library. So, yeah, library saved me. Yeah. And so it's been closed for about two years and they've done a good job of having little, little branches around the city, but it's not the same as having a central library because they are they're community centres and people who don't care about the homeless and so forth who go into libraries to be warm quite often will go, oh, well, but who are they serving? At some time in almost everybody's life, the library will do them some good. So I'm, I'm a great believer in public libraries and, of course, I'm a great believer in keeping archives and, you know, keeping the paper archives. The, the whole thing that is said at least twice in the book that today can't know what tomorrow will need is terribly important and also applies to climate change, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I guess looking forward a little bit, uh, I always like to ask, is there anything you're working on currently that you can tell us about? I am finishing a young adult book which is set in the same world as my other young adult books. So Southland, which is a kind of a made-up South Pacific Republic. And it's contemporary and it's called Kings of this World. And I'm having a ball with it at the moment. I've solved all its problems. It's got to the point where I'm going, ah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're not going to get away on me. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, but it will require some polishing. After that, I can write a ghost story. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh, sounds intriguing. Ooh. <laughs> um, uh, out of curiosity, do you have any plans to uh, write? I think it's technically like considered still ongoing, another book in the Vintner's Luck series. Yeah, I, yeah I've got about 50,000 words of the next one of those. So, And I'm not stuck. It's just I'm just going for a phase where I'm <laughs> trying to talk myself into which is the more rewarding thing to do of all the things that I have in front of me that I want to do. And uh, I'm certainly being nagged by certain quarters to finish finish that. <laughs> so I, I will. I will finish it. I mean, properly, probably after I finish the YI, I should go straight on to finish um, the Angels Reserve, as it's called. Because it's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I know how it goes. I don't, of course, it's going to give me endless problems because they're sort of problems of imagining when it comes to, you know, things like what it's like to fly through a hurricane without a plane. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah stuff like <laughs> An that. important distinction there. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm glad you asked me about that, actually. Yeah, you outed me about yeah. that one. Yeah, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing it, I'm writing well, it. Well, I don't mean to put you in any more hot water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I also always like to ask, uh, is there just anything that you've been reading lately that you can recommend, stuff that you enjoyed? Okay, so, uh, gosh. Um, the, the, the big thing for me during most of last year was reading the entirety of... Natalia Ginsburg, the Italian writer, both her nonfiction and her fiction, she's amazing. And that's all that I can say about it. She's got a very small book called The Little Virtues, which is a book of essays, which everyone should read because it's 
it's just more concentrated wisdom than I've ever encountered anywhere else. So, so that's the sort of literary fiction. And I've also discovered Joan Aiken. You know Joan Aiken who wrote The Wolves of Willoughby Chase, the kids' book, and Nightbirds of Nantucket. Yeah, she's a fantastic 20th century kids writer um, who all the kids writers know and love. But she also wrote mysteries, you know, murder mysteries and Regency romances. And she's got the best Regency romances apart from Georgette Heyer, who I love and adore. So I've been reading those and the the mysteries. So there are almost everything you want sitting there on Kindle. I, I do love being able to work through the whole body of someone's work, particularly those those slightly forgotten but superbly entertaining writers. So yeah, I've, I've been doing that and and Georgette Heyer too, but she's sort of not really forgotten because they just held a big conference on her and they're reassuring everything she ever wrote in new editions again. So yes. It's it's good when your when your um enthusiasms are confirmed by the world. So yep, yeah, I'm and I'm about to start reading the Patricia Lockwood. Okay. About the- Sounds good. Yeah, I, I always love uh, hearing about new books or hearing about the same books again and bumping them even further up my list to read. Well, a way I like to close out these interviews is just asking what's one thing you're excited about right now? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So I, me and my husband have bought a bit of land in Golden Bay in, in New Zealand, and we're basically living for being able to build the little place there where we can retire, you know. <laughs> So we're kind of looking forward to, because it's it's our favourite part of the country. It's a very, very beautiful part of the country. And we're only about five minutes walk from one of the nicest swimming beaches there is, but up high enough so the sea won't come and get us. Ah, yes, yes. that's that's Slow. important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, yep, that's, um, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of like looking at paint colours and, and, and flooring and things like that and, and then and doing sums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that sounds lovely. Well, more of the picking out the things to put in than the doing sums, but <laughs> yes. Very important part, though, the doing of sums. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps things up. Elizabeth, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for asking me and your great questions. You can find Elizabeth Knox on Twitter as Elizabeth Knox NZ or at her website, ElizabethKnox.com. The absolute book blends multiple genres into a lyrical mix of the magical and the mundane and is absolutely perfect for fans of Neil Gaiman and Susanna Clark. As always, you can find us over at TheFantasyN.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so, so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.